0: You're listening to the Nomad Skeptic Podcast, brought to you by NomadSkeptic.com. What's the digital nomad lifestyle all about? Is it really possible to live and work overseas, traveling from one exotic destination to the next, making money from nothing more than a laptop and an internet connection? Or is the DN concept a pipe dream, an illusion, an elaborate hoax? Trying to find and share answers to these questions and more, here's your host, JLB.
1: Okay, thank you, Faye. Yes, this is episode number two of the Nomad Skeptic Podcast. We're recording this on May 23, 2019. And wow, our first ever guest on the podcast. I think I might have made a big mistake here, guys. I think I've got the heaviest hitting guest that we're going to get in the whole series on episode number two. It's all downhill from here because I've got with me a fellow. And I'm not going to say too much. I'm going to give him a chance to introduce himself. And then once he's done that... We'll go through a quick rundown of what we'll talk about today, and it should be a lot of fun. So without further ado, I'm not even going to say your name, guest number one. You're going to tell us everything we need to know about who you are and why you're here on the Nomad Skeptic Podcast.
0: Wow, thanks for that intro, John. I'm actually going to try and be less impressive, so it means your podcast can steadily get better over time. I appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. But uh, my name is Steve Bayat. And I've been building stuff on the Internet since I was in middle school, which was in like the 1990s. So I guess I'm a software engineer. But in terms of being a digital nomad, uh the first trip I took was in like 2008 or 2009 when I graduated college and I was 21. And I traveled for about two and a half years or so living in places like Spain, Morocco, Bali, and kind of just working for US companies as a web developer. Uh, the main thing that I did was to build websites and applications for musicians, which was super fun. It was super cool to be in like the entertainment industry like that. And I got to work with all kinds of like really fun bands like Jack Johnson and Lenny Kravitz and Modest Yahoo just kind of working on their websites. And um, that was in like 2008, 2009, 2010. And after that, got a... Just kind of, I felt pretty isolated with like the quote unquote digital nomad scene, which was kind of not really a thing back then. So I uh, kind of moved back to San Francisco and started a couple companies and kind of worked within the like San Francisco tech scene for kind of the remainder of that time and just took uh, shorter traveling experiences. But uh, actually, in two weeks, myself and my fiance are headed out again. We're going to go live um, and be actual digital nomads for the next uh, year or year and a half. So I'm super excited about the the change.
1: Well, we have got a lot to talk about. So you've done the DN thing since before there was even really a term for it. You're going to be doing it all over again with your fiance, which sounds exciting. And you've worked in the tech scene in San Francisco, which for a lot of people is kind of the dream these days, isn't it? To work in tech on the West Coast, in that area, be with all the intelligent, futuristic people. So... We'll have a lot to talk about today. I'm looking forward to it. So we've got a bit of a rundown that I want to talk about today. Tell me if any of this appeals to you. We're gonna give you more of a chance to talk about your previous experiences from doing the DN thing before there was a term for it. And then I'm hoping to get your opinions on the DN concept in general, such as when did you first hear of it and what appealed to you at the start. And we'll talk all about your experiences And what I'd love to get your take on is the DN subculture, the digital nomad lifestyle. From what you've observed on the ground in the past and then through to this day, what do you think about this lifestyle or subculture or philosophy that seems to be growing slowly but surely? and everything that's related to all of that so a lot to talk about does that all sound good to you sounds great sensational well why don't you start us with your first trip going back to 2009 walk us through this what were you doing with your life at the time what made you think of going overseas the floor is yours tell us all about this
0: yeah so i was studying like economics and finance in in college in uh, santa barbara california and uh, I remember towards the end, like towards when we were all graduating, uh, there was a number of like the big accounting firms that came in and gave us like a really big presentation about how, you know, hey, come to work as an accountant. After you graduate, you can make forty five thousand dollars a year and you're only going to have to work 50 hour weeks and you'll have to come live in, in Los Angeles and things like that. And that was kind of the real turning point for me, because a lot of my classmates thought that sounded amazing. And I, I thought something was wrong with me because I thought that sounded horrible. And uh, I really wanted to think of, of a different solution, something to kind of uh, where I could travel and also still kind of build a career. And my solution at the time was I was already kind of building websites for smaller companies in the area. I think I made websites for like a restaurant and a sorority and some other like small businesses. This is 2000 and nine. So I was using all kinds of antiquated technologies. And uh, as that kind of shaped up, I thought, you know what, maybe I could do this kind of all over the world. So what I had done was just um, shot some emails out to companies that had overly bad websites and places that I thought sounded cool. Uh, I'm really into surfing. So my, my real focus was on destinations that were near the ocean that had good surf so i would talk to hotels or surf camps or whoever kind of near these these surf destinations and see if they'd be willing to do a trade for accommodation for a website and that was kind of the way it all started fantastic and i'm looking at your linkedin
1: here and it says you attended ucsb which for those of us who are not from the united states we don't know a lot about we typically don't know a lot about The the tertiary education system in the US, but that sounds like a pretty nice college. Is this the case? You got into a, a good college and got yourself a good degree?
0: That was the case. Yeah. UCSB is actually unique in the California or even just like US college scene because all of the kids in the school live within one square mile of each other and it's all right on the beach. So if you've ever seen like a movie that showcases like American college parties or what those sorts of things look like, it's basically the exact same as where I went to school. Like lots of partying, lots of just like young kids being
1: being young on a beach. I see. And then it says that you studied uh, technology management, among other things. Can you go back even further for us? When did you first get into technology? When did this become a big part of your life?
0: Yeah, I remember when I was in middle school. So that would have been like... Thirteen, fourteen—like when I was thirteen or fourteen, I uh, was super into programming and building websites. This is kind of the the dawn of HTML and all of those things. I guess this would have been like nineteen ninety seven or eight, and I was super into it then, and was kind of just building little websites and things. And over time, I just kept my interest in it and kept programming, and um, it's always kind of been a thing that I do. Sensational!
1: All right, so let's fast forward then. So you've gotten your degree, your good degree from a good college. And it's late, it's a late 2000, what do we call those? You know how there's the 2020s that are coming and we're in the 20 teens. What do we call those, the noughties? I think that's what I've heard them called, the noughts. The noughts, all right. So it's in the late noughts and uh, you're still a young man and you've graduated and you want to travel. Had you traveled previously or was your first DN trip your first overseas trip?
0: I did uh, a number of like American spring break trips when I was in college. So went on kind of surf trips or surf slash partying trips to Mexico when I was like 18 and 19. And then I had studied abroad in Australia, actually, for a semester. I lived in in Brisbane and, and studied out there. Wow, you lived in Brisbane, Australia, which suburb? In St. Lucia. St. Lucia, which is where the University of Queensland is based. That's right. That's the the university I attended.
1: And that's the university that I attended for a while as well. And we've just learned that just now while recording. Fantastic. Well, tell me a little bit about UQ and St. Lucia. Indulge me here. What did you think of that?
0: You know, it was a, an interesting transition because I was coming from a university in California where nobody lived with their parents. We were all kind of living in like slummy university housing, but just partying a whole bunch. And no one really took school that seriously. And I mean, my impression of UQ was a little different. People seemed to mostly still be living at home and taking sort of general education classes. It was a little difficult for me to kind of get I don't know, to get involved in the university culture there. But I ended up working at a restaurant and a bar kind of in my free time there and just taking lots of trips around Australia and trying to surf and see all the cool things that, that you guys have over there. So it ended up being a really cool, really cool experience. As far as what I learned, I didn't I didn't learn much, I guess, is the, the the broad strokes there.
1: We should know this, and I'm sure most of the listeners know this. It is a small world. But what are the odds of this that you attended UQ in St. Lucia Which is where I was for several years before I started doing all of this. It's just... And now I'm talking to you. You're back in the US right now. I'm in Kuching as we speak. And yet we both attended. It's a beautiful campus, isn't it? UQ, St. Lucia. Absolutely gorgeous.
0: It's amazing. Amazing school.
1: Wow. All right. Well, we can't stay on that for too long. We've got to press on with the rest of these questions. So, we've got a basic idea of you, Steve. You got into tech when you were young, went and studied it at a good college. You wanted to travel. And then in 2007, a book was released by Tim Ferriss called The 4-Hour Work Week. Can I ask you, have you read that book? And if so, do you know when you first read it?
0: I, I definitely have read the book. And I remember the first time I ever heard about it, I was on a beach in Greece and I'd already been traveling for about a year and I'd already been kind of doing the, the digital nomad thing again before there was kind of the term for it. And I remember a guy on the beach was like, oh, you must have read 4-Hour Week and gotten really inspired by that, huh? And I was like who? 4-hour what now? And he told me all about it. Of course, I went out and bought a copy. And, you know, after that, I was like, oh, wow, this actually makes sense. It kind of put a lot of things into words and kind of was a very aspirational book for me as far as the, the remains of my travels. Wow. Is it fair to say, and don't overstate it if it's not fair, but is it fair to say that Tim Ferriss's book
1: did have a significant influence on your path? Or were you kind of already on the path and this one just sort of helps to put it into words?
0: You know, I was already traveling and already doing the, you know, the similar lifestyle pieces with that. But I mean, his podcast has been an inspiration. The books are great. Like, I'm definitely a a huge fan. Excellent.
1: Excellent. All right. So, let's press on then. So, you decided to board a flight and head overseas and try and do what we now call the DN thing. What were you calling it back then? Did you have a word for it? How did you describe it to your friends and family?
0: There was a term that people used that I see less of now that was location independent, like I'm a, I'm a location independent web developer or something. I never really used that, but that was I, know, I remember the phrasing I've, I definitely heard at the time. And what did your
1: friends and family say to you if you tried to suggest to them or say to them, look, I'm going overseas, but I'm not just going to be a tourist and come back in two weeks. I'm kind of hoping to stay
0: away for a while. Do you remember what kind of reactions you were getting from people? It definitely was a spectrum. I remember most of my friends were very supportive and they kind of understood that, you know, I was doing something that was a little riskier than what they were doing. And maybe they didn't have the appetite for it, but they were all very supportive. Um, I think people in general were were really nice about it. Like there was some folks who who didn't understand everything, but they were like, go for it. I think one of the things that was maybe harder to grasp was when I first kind of booked flights for a year out or something. Like I was going to Europe for a year to kind of start out. I didn't have the money to 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 make that work, and people were like, "What are you like? What are we going to do? How are you going to plan for that?" Like, and I I kind of did that on purpose, so uh, I would have to figure something out. So I'd have to kind of be in a situation that I was going to be challenged to make some money and and stay for a longer period of time and get involved in whatever it was going to be. Basically, put yourself in the deep end, to sink or swim exactly
1: what do you think about that i mean we're kind of jumping a little bit here so forgive me for that but what do you think this is a question that comes up a lot in so-called digital nomad forums and uh, the reddit and these sorts of things people saying how much money do i need to save before i go or what should be my monthly income before i leave and it's an understandable question but obviously people's answers are going to say well that depends on you as a person depends where you want to go depends how good you are with budgeting these sorts of things but I suppose looking at things now in 2019, if somebody came to you, Steve, and they said, I've got a small online business or I'm doing some freelance work and I've got a little bit saved and I've got a little bit of a monthly income, but roughly speaking, if I'm going to Eastern Europe or to the low cost living parts of South America or to Southeast Asia, roughly how much do you think I should have coming in and how much should I have saved? Could you give a ballpark
0: figure to such a person? I think that will be pretty tough to give like a blanket answer. I would more say, how much money do you need when you get back home? If in case everything kind of goes belly up, right? So, Hey, do you have, can you go back home and live with your parents or are you going to have to actually figure out, all of the things when you get back, if something doesn't work out, there's so many different factors and variables to it. But I think for me, one of the biggest misconceptions that I've heard is that because, you know, especially when I was graduating college, people, people said to me all the time, well, you must be rich to be able to do all this. And really, I was living a lifestyle that was probably a quarter, if not more inexpensive than my friends back home. So it was the the more frugal decision to do, to, you know, to live on the road like that. And I think that's, that's certainly still the case for, for me living in San Francisco, which is one of the most expensive places on earth at this point.
1: Yeah, that's what I've heard. Well, the reason I wanted to ask that question just now is because this does come up a lot. And I wonder how many people are out there who probably could afford to do this already, but they're being conservative, which is sensible. You don't want to take any silly risks and go overseas and have to come back within a month and any of these kind of problems. But at the same time, I'm standing here in Kuching and I'm telling you, had I come here six months earlier, I'd be financially better off. That is how much more affordable this place is than Brisbane. So by trying to be more conservative and have a bit more saved up and a bit more stability with my online work, which was sensible, I don't blame myself for doing that. I probably actually hampered myself a little bit, Steve, because I can do a lot better here financially then I was doing in Brisbane i'd probably be further ahead right now had i had I left earlier if you get what i 'm trying to say
0: i I completely understand John that makes perfect sense. I think it's especially looking at at Reddit and reading some of the forums too. It seems like this is something one of the things that comes up most frequently for people you know how much do I have to plan, how much do I have to save, how much do I have to do and Really, I mean, booking the tickets, the best way to figure that out, as long as you have some sort of backup plan, whatever that is, whether that's savings or moving in with friends or moving with parents, I feel like that's not that irresponsible, especially if you're younger and don't have kids.
1: And that is a backup plan for most people. They can go and live with their parents or with siblings or with friends if it comes to that. They have got some kind of backup network. So even if they were to leave and, you know, in a month or three months or whatever, It doesn't work out. They can always go back home and start again. It's not a big disaster, is it?
0: Yeah, that's it. And I think the bigger disaster for me that I've always looked at is, you know, am I gonna get to be 80, 90 years old and feel old and crotchety and look back on my life and be like, wow, I worked a whole lot. I wish I wouldn't have done that. I should have traveled more. That's really the the bigger risk in my view. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And as you were saying that I'm on the eighth floor here of uh, an apartment complex in Kuching. And I can, I've got my table set up in front of a window. And I can see that there's this young little girl in one of the houses. She's walked up the stairs and she's not very happy with her, with her sister. And she's, she looks like she's a little bit upset. And you think she has got her whole life ahead of her. And what people like you and me were sometimes concerned about is we don't want to get to the end of this life and think, man, I should have done it. You know, I'd ra- you'd rather be someone who's young and upset about how things have turned out, than older and thinking, "Wow, I really didn't take those opportunities that were waiting for me right in front of my face."
0: That's it. Yeah, I mean, traveling for me, I don't. I'm imagine the word is the same in in Australian language, but you know, a snow globe, like those things where you shake up and they have the little things in them, little pieces of snow. I always feel like traveling is like that for your life, where especially long-term traveling, where you just, you're shaking the snow globe of your life and wherever the pieces end up, they're going to be different and you just try and,
1: you know, work it out as you go. I love it. Fantastic. All right. So I did tell you that I wanted to ask you about your travels, that first bout of traveling. And then later in the call, we'll come back and talk about your plans for the future and your opinions on the digital nomad lifestyle. Because there are some bad things to it as well. We've spoken about some of the good things, but there are some bad things. We'll come back and speak about all of that. But I'd love for you to tell us now in your first travels, where you went, give us an an overview of the itinerary and then tell us about some of the the better places you stayed, the better experiences you had, and then come back and tell us about some of the, maybe some of the less uh, positive experiences as well. Can you give us a bit of an overview of all of that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So my first trip was for about two and a half years and about a year of that, I was primarily in Western Europe and you know most most prominently in spain i lived in san sebastian and that was kind of my base for a lot of those the european uh uh, forays and then uh spent a lot of time in morocco during that time as well and then i spent the longest amount of time in indonesia and primarily bali this was back in in 2010. as far as you know some of the amazing things that happened i mean just being able to go a different place whenever I wanted and meet different people. And all of that was just so amazing. I mean, surfing was my kind of my primary outlet and what I was really focused on and and still am. So like I can bore you with stories of all the, you know, the great waves I've caught and all that. I spent also a lot of time in Central America during that time. You know, there was actually a time in in Nicaragua where I got to participate in a pig wrestling competition. That was kind of cool. There was a little festival in the village that I was staying in and Uh, All the men in the village kind of got in this fenced-in area and were wrestling a pig, and they invited me and my friend to come join. So we got to wrestle this pig with all these people, which was kind of weird, but very fun. Did you win? I did not win, no. I I actually felt bad. I didn't want to just, like, being American, I was a little bit taller than everybody else who was participating, but I didn't want to be that kind of, like, Western guy who just, like, push everybody down and take their pig. It seemed like bad form. Oh, you went easy on them. It was, yeah. If I could redo it again, I, I I certainly would not, so.
1: Okay. So, tell us about Bali. You were there 2010 and Bali in Australia is a very popular destination for short-term tourists. But now in the, in the modern world, Bali has become something of a mecca for digital nomads as well. Tell us a little bit about your experience there in Bali.
0: Yeah. So, I've spent a lot of time in Bali over the years. I, I you know, made that my base for about a year during this trip that we're talking about now and have kind of gone back every year for at least a month or two, pretty much every year. So I've kind of seen, I mean, again, 2010 is not that early in Bali's world, but I've definitely had kind of a, a front row seat to the last nine or 10 years of change in, in that part of the world. So I remember when I first went there, there wasn't, I, you know, I didn't have an iPhone, there wasn't Wi-Fi everywhere. It was to actually work and, and find reliable internet was actually pretty tough. I remember, you know, constantly the power going out and I'd have to go especially when I was working on deadlines and work at this bar that was around the corner of my house and people are, are partying and on vacations. And I'm sitting there at like three in the morning trying to crank out some code for some deadline for some company in America and just feeling like, man, this place needs some better internet or something. And that's certainly not the case now. And when was the last time you were there? The last time I was there was 2016, but I'm headed there in two weeks. That's where myself and my fiance are starting our trip in the next next little leg. Here's a
1: question for you. I've noticed some people who haven't yet done the DN thing but they're looking forward to it. They have this perception that some of these DN meccas, whether it's Chiang Mai or Changgu, that it's full of digital nomads and you can't walk anywhere without bumping into them. But that's not really the case. Can you give us your take on that?
0: Yeah. I mean, it really depends on where you are and and all of that. And I think, too, you know, if you go to like a co-working space in Changu, you're going to see a lot of digital nomads. But if you're just kind of cruising around doing your thing, you're going to see a lot of people where you don't necessarily know if they're living there or how long they're staying or if they're just on vacation or anything like that. I haven't been to a lot of other digital nomad hubs, but I, I do know that Changu has become that over the years.
1: Yeah. And, and the reason I ask this is because I think some people do have this perception that this DN thing is bigger than it really is. And we'll talk more about that later in the call. But I think we've got a very good introduction to who you are, your DN background, your tech background. Tell us a little bit, though, about what you're working on in the tech sphere right now.
0: Yeah, so it's actually relatively similar to what I've been doing kind of the whole time, just contracting for US companies. I build. You know, web applications, mobile apps, websites, kind of anything for, you know, small, medium sized businesses. I've also helped a number of startups here in San Francisco as like a consultant to help with their hiring plans. I've also made a couple early stage investments in like the SF tech scene, kind of just getting my hands dirty with whatever whatever interests me in the tech sphere. Well, I've got your site aquatic.io on my screen right now. There's Jack Johnson.
1: I can see him on the phone, I guess, uh, image On that front screen, a company that you once worked for was bought out or had some kind of relationship with a company everybody's heard about. Can you speak a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So actually towards the end of kind of this two and a half year digital nomad excursion back in 2010, towards the end of that, I was kind of man, I was I was a little bored professionally just kind of building, you know, websites and apps for people got a little bit like a I felt like a like a like a just a, a mouse on a wheel like I was cranking stuff out and I would get really into a project and then hand it off and then kind of do it all over again and I really wanted to try something different and at the same time too I was feeling a little isolated just having traveled for so long so I moved back to San Francisco and uh, started a startup called swarm mobile Uh, and so we did kind of like the very prototypical San Francisco venture capital tech thing. Like we, we raised money and hired engineers and it was kind of just like you'd see on an episode of Silicon Valley or anything, you know, anything else that you imagine for the Silicon Valley tech space and, uh, worked on that kind of did the, the like double latte stress thing for a long time and ended up selling that company to Groupon in 2014, which was very cool. So ended up working for Groupon for two years after that.
1: Yeah, the Groupon, and that was what stood out to me when I was going through your list of items on the CV and the LinkedIn and this kind of thing. Wow, Groupon, that's a comp For somebody my age, I'm a little bit of a, uh, what's the word, a neophyte? I don't, there's a lot of technology that I don't use. I don't use Netflix. I don't have a Facebook account, any of these things. But I've definitely used Groupon before, and I thought, wow, this fellow's worked for Groupon. In Australia, Groupon and Scoopon are kind of the, the two big, big uh, websites for this kind of thing you spent a couple of years working there. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, they had bought my company and so they kind of integrated our team into Groupon land. So we got to learn all about putting coupons on the internet and all these things. And I will say that, you know, the the acquisition was a little funny. It kind of ended up where we didn't do a whole lot of work for the first little bit of that, that um, jaunt working at Groupon, but it was a very interesting experience. It was Again, a very like typical San Francisco tech scene where there's free food and alcohol at work and there's always parties and things like that. And there's times where you kinda look around and you think, you know, does anything ever get done around here? But it was a lot of fun. I loved it. It was a very cool experience.
1: and I would have no idea if much work is getting done. I've read a little bit about it though, and it does seem sometimes as a complete outsider with no personal experience that the tech scene now is almost bloated with people can you tell me if i've got a complete misconception there or has it are we heading towards peak tech worker in that part of the world what's going on there
0: i think not necessarily that there's too many people but i think that there's not enough engineering talent there's not enough nerds there's not enough like people who can build stuff in in any part really and one of the things that signifies to investors, especially in San Francisco, that a company is doing well is how many people work for them. So there's kind of a, I don't know, a contest to see who can hire the most engineers, to see who can grow the fastest, because the theory is that that correlates to you know things happening quicker or better, or you know better products being made and sales and all that. Um, And one of the ways that happens is by attracting engineers with perks. So there's so many companies, you know, within, you know, a couple miles of my house here that are offering things like, you know, free food for every meal of the day and unlimited vacation and all you can drink anything, including alcohol. And, you know, they're going to pay for your laundry and, and a masseuse and all of these different things to try and entice people to come work for them. So it's it's definitely a bizarre thing especially when you think about you know what jobs were like for it I don't know in the 50s and 60s for my parents and all that it just is a completely different thing it has changed so
1: quickly I'm not I'm 31 so I'm not really not that old and when I was younger when I was at university it was still people wanted to get their degrees and they wanted to go and work for one of the big four accounting firms, or they wanted to go and work for one of the big six legal firms, or however many it was, I don't know, I'm not, I wasn't studying law, but you get the idea. Those, they, people wanted to go and work for these established firms in their field. But It seems like now a lot of younger people, they want to go and work for Google. They want to go and work for one of these tech giants, or they want to be, they want to be the next... Facebook. They want to be the next, um, what's his name, the guy who started Facebook?
0: Mark Zuckerberg.
1: They want to go and be the next Mark Zuckerberg. They want to start a startup from, from their garage or whatever. And that's cool. I mean, good on them for having this vision of, of building something that people want. But the world has changed dramatically in this sense in the space of 10 or 15 years, hasn't it?
0: It really has. I think about that a lot in terms of education, because the the, the kids who are going through high school and college right now, like, They have no idea. No one knows what the job market's going to be like when they graduate. No one knows what it's going to be like to, you know, how to get a job or how to make money or anything like that, because the landscape keeps changing so much. I think about it also kind of funny terms, because when I was a kid, my parents used to tell me, you know, stop playing video games. You'll never you're going to rot your brain. You're never going to, you know, get a job like that. But if I would have kept playing video games, there's people now who make millions of dollars playing video games. I could have been that could have been my thing. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? People
1: streaming their video game playing and attracting an audience doing that. Hundreds or thousands of people watching someone play a video game and years and years of parents all around the world saying you're wasting your time with the video games. Yeah, our generation was, but this generation, some of them can make money doing that. Just Not even building the game, just playing it.
0: Especially when you consider that, you know, with an audience, so whether you're a six year old who's reviewing toys on YouTube, making millions of dollars for your parents, or if you have an Instagram following for like the the stuff you do on, you know, rollerblades or whatever it is, like there's so many different ways to add value to the economy that no one really thought of. Even a couple years ago, and it's it's just changed so quickly. I think it's so cool. It's so cool to see that.
1: Well, a lot of the the apps that are being built and the platforms that are being made available are helping people uh, improve their lives in one way or another. But I think a lot of this Twitch streaming and the video game streaming—it's just a new form of entertainment. And as far as I can tell, humans have always wanted entertainment, and they probably always will. So if you can entertain somebody by playing as a as an avatar in a video game and shooting people or collecting things or doing whatever it is these people do. I'm not much of a video gamer. If that provides entertainment to people, Steve, then what's the problem?
0: Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm the same age as you, 31. So for me, I'm, I'm, it's still not my thing. But I look at it and I'm like, wow, if people can make a living doing this. That is, that is amazing. It really is. What a time to be alive. And it just seems to be going
1: so quickly, just like this call, my friend. And we've only gotten through the introduction. So I think we've got a good idea of who you are, what you do. 31-year-old man with tech experience who went and got the degree, went and got the job, did some traveling, still working in that scene to this day. You plan to go and do more DN traveling and living shortly, very shortly, actually, in a couple of weeks, so we'll talk about that. But first, I do like to break these podcasts up with a bit of an interlude, and I've got a clip here from The Truman Show. Tell me, when did you first see the film The Truman Show?
0: Oh, man, what year did The Truman Show come out? I imagine I saw it in the theaters, actually, so...
1: I think it was 1998. Don't quote me. It was either 98 or 99.
0: That sounds right to me. So I think I saw it in theaters when I was, whatever, 14 years old or something. Yeah, you would
1: have been young. When you were that age, do you think some of the themes resonated with you or did it kind of go over your head, you know, due to being a bit too young at the time?
0: You know, I haven't watched the movie since then, so I can only imagine a lot of it did go over my head. But I'd like to think that I, you know, picked up a couple pieces here and there.
1: Well, what I'm going to do is insert a clip. Here. This is just a short one. And this is when Christoph, who runs the Truman Show, he's like the producer, the director, the creative driving force of the Truman Show in the film. He's the one who's running the set and the whole lot of it. And he's being asked by a TV presenter about Truman's experience. And the question is, why do you think Truman has never figured out that his life is not as it's being presented? And then Christoph gives us the answer. So I'll insert that into the call right now. We'll be back in a few seconds. Christoph, let me ask you why do you think that uh, Truman has never come close to discovering the true nature of his world until now?
2: We accept the reality of the world with which we're presented. It's as simple as that.
1: Yeah, so that was Christoph explaining that we accept the reality of the world with which we are presented. Give me your take on that, Steve. What do you make of that scene and what Christoph is saying? Do you think that there's an element of truth to this in the real world, that this is how most people do lead their lives? They just accept what's presented and it's completely normal.
0: Yeah, I see that in a a number of different situations. I don't know if this analogy is going to work, but I kind of think of it as imagine if you're standing on a beach and you draw a circle a big circle like in the sand around you. A lot of people imagine that their life is everything that's in the circle, but there's so many different ways that you can expand that circle. And at the end of the day, it's something you, you drew in the sand and you can change. And, you know, traveling has really emphasized that for me as, as well as, you know, working in tech and, and really trying to challenge the status quo. Like as the world has changed, like we've already talked about, there's so many different opportunities that show up in so many different ways that you can, that you can be. And, you know, considering continuing to be thoughtful about that and and not just accepting the reality that you think is is the one is is has been pretty important for me. Yeah, and so for
1: me, the relevance of this clip is, like you said, to do with traveling. I'm not one of those people who says, "Oh, you've got to travel if you don't travel." And yada yada. People people should do whatever they feel compelled to do. And I know several people in my real life who I grew up with. They don't even have passports. They're quite comfortable. Living very close to where we all grew up and they seem like they're just as happy with their lives as I am with mine. So I'm not one of those, oh, you have to travel sort of people. But from my experience in life, had I never traveled back in 2010, my entire life would be different. I never would have realized that I wanted to get out of Melbourne. So I never would have moved to Brisbane, which is of course where I studied at UQ, which means I never would have started my YouTube channel, which means I never would have built this little online business that I'm running. So I wouldn't be standing here today in Kuching on a beautiful Thursday morning chatting with a fellow from the United States. None of this would have happened had it not been for that six-month detour to Africa back in 2010. And one of the big things that happened for me was it changed my perceptions on a whole bunch of things on how people operate, the different kinds of people on the world. Because prior to that point, I'd been drinking some Kool-Aid about you know how people are all the same but they're not people are different and and that's a beautiful thing that's not a bad thing so a lot of my perceptions were changed by the travel and i think had i just visited for a couple of weeks that wouldn't have been the case but it was because i was there for 6 months it had a profound effect on me and it seems like this dn concept anybody who does decide to pursue it and they stick with it whether it's for 6 months 12 months in your case a couple of years this is going to change your life and your perceptions i think it's going to change the way you view your reality would say you
0: fully agree i think that seeing the way that other people live around the world is is a pretty useful thing it's pretty useful to put things in perspective that you know if you're you know stressed out about how they got your coffee wrong at starbucks or how you want a new pair of shoes and it's they're expensive and you can't afford them so you got to save up like there's so many just putting all that in perspective i think it's been really helpful for me that most of the world is pretty happy with not a lot of stuff And that's been a really cool thing to see. Excellent point. Yeah, when I was in Africa, I went
1: out to one of the little shanty towns for a project that I was doing, trying to learn, trying to learn about this place. And it was actually a project for the university that I was studying at at the time. I was on exchange, obviously. And I could not get over how the children who lived in little shanty houses, okay, this is in a, a shanty town in Johannesburg in South Africa, these little children all lived in shanty towns, like in shanty houses. We're talking houses with four walls and a tin roof, okay? And not insulated, no proper heating, no electricity, just, just a shed, basically. And these kids were the happiest kids I'd ever seen in my whole life, without exaggeration. Dancing, singing, smiling, yeah? They saw my camera, they were like, cheese, cheese. And I'm like, man, these kids are high on life. They're loving it. And they have nothing. They, have, they, have, they don't even have a real house to live in. Yeah, And when you, when you see that and you experience the kids' fun and their, like their bubbly attitude towards life and towards you, that, um, that, that does something in your mind, I think. It really does make you step back and, and wonder, how come I'm not as happy as these kids? <laughs> I've got everything. And, and these kids are significantly happier than me. Something's not right here.
0: That's it. I mean, that's been a huge motivation for me for kind of this next little stint as as being a digital nomad. Like I, I own a house in San Francisco and have two cars with my fiance. And so I have a mortgage and had been working in these jobs in like this really high paced tech field where I've been really stressed out and all that. And I really just want to take a step back and, and want to live a, a simpler life where it's a backpack and it's just a lot less stuff to think about. I really do think it will end up with me being happier and less stressed out and more able to kind of I don't know, to, to communicate and connect with people that I meet along the way.
1: Steve, that is a beautiful segue. Well, why don't you get this next segment started for us? Tell us about what you've got planned and include the part about the fiance. Whose idea was it? Because whenever I find couples who are doing this, I think they did not turn to each other on the couch one day and both say, honey, I want to quit our jobs and go and travel the world for an indeterminate period trying to make money online and have no real home, they didn't turn to each other and say that simultaneously. One of them has broached the topic first. So why don't you walk us through this? Tell us firstly what you're planning to do in a couple of weeks and then tell us how it all came about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So... When I moved back to San Francisco and started my first company, and then it sold, I said, man, as soon as this thing sells, I'm going to go travel. And then I didn't. I worked at Groupon for two years. And then I always said, when I leave Groupon, I'm going to go travel again. And then when I left Groupon, I got another job at another startup that eventually was sold again. And I said, when that one gets sold, I'm going to go travel. And then that was a year ago. And I've been really trying to get this trip together for the past year. And it was definitely my my motivation. like I was the one who turned to her and said, hey, what if we went and go traveled for a year uh, or longer? And I've kind of had some time now to do some convincing and do some smoothing out and, and put some some pen to paper and kind of show her what that would look like. And at this point, she's, she's bought in and she's into it. And we're going to leave uh, in two weeks here and go to Bali, but we're going to be in Southeast Asia for about six months. I think we want to go to spend some time in Thailand, spend some time in the Philippines, spend some more time in different parts of Indonesia besides Bali. And then uh, we're actually meeting her parents in New Zealand uh, for Christmas. And then I really want to buy a camper van in New Zealand and spend like three or four months there kind of doing the camper van thing. Uh, I have a dream of waking up in the morning on a camper van and having a canoe and taking the canoe out on the lake in the morning. I just think that would be so cool. And then We want to head over to Central South America next year uh, in the summertime and just kind of, you know, uh, maybe do another van there and just kind of hang out in Peru and Ecuador and kind of see what the scene is like over there and then maybe eventually make our way home. But that's so far in the future and has so many, so many contingencies that it's hard to say what what we're going to want to do in 2020.
1: Yeah. And that seems to be how it is with the DN thing. People will set themselves some targets, places they want to be. But ultimately, it's that first destination. That's the only one that's really locked in. That's the one where the tickets too. And that's the one where the accommodation is usually booked. But then from there, anything can happen, can't it?
0: That's it. Yeah. And so one of the ways this trip kind of came about is we were, uh, my, my fiance and I were going to get married and we were looking at what a wedding costs. And in America, people really freak out about weddings and We were gonna try and have this wedding with, you know, two hundred people or something crazy like that. And looking at the price of the wedding versus the price of traveling for a year, it was more or less the same. And that's that was another huge motivation that, hey, maybe we should do do the traveling thing.
1: Oh wow. What is the do you mind if I ask, what is the average cost of the of the wedding? You know, from start to finish go to woe among the people you know. Ballpark figures, how much are people? Say they're about thirty, it's their first marriage. What are people spending on, on weddings in your part of the world these days?
0: Oh, man, I live in, a, in an area where people are, are drastically overpaid and weddings are something that they, they definitely funnel cash into. I would say like the, the cheapest wedding that I've been to in the past couple of years was probably in like the 15 to 20 grand U.S. Uh, mark. And the most expensive one I've been to was probably in the 150 grand U.S. mark. So big variance there, but somewhere in that ballpark, maybe in that like 50 range, I'd say is quote unquote normal, which is, is pretty crazy when you think about it.
1: That is a lot of money, isn't it? Because as you know, and as most of the listeners, Nomad Skeptic podcast will be aware, 15 to 20 grand US, that's enough to lead a very good life in many parts of the world for 12 months. I'm talking a very good life.
0: That's it. And looking at the math for these things. And, you know, that was something we both, me and my fiance, both thought we wanted. And as we kind of looked into it in more detail and thought, what else could we do with our lives right now? Like we don't have kids at the moment and uh, we both want to start a family and want to have little little kids running around one day. But in the meantime, I think it'd be a, a better better education for us to to do the traveling thing. It's something you'll remember forever. And look, I don't
1: know your friends who had the. The lavish six-figure wedding, and I'm sure they had a great time. They'll remember it forever, and their whole family and friends were very glad that this was such an elaborate, fantastic wedding. But I can tell you right now, Steve, they spent more on that wedding than I have spent living my life over the past five or six years. Comfortably. Comfortably. It could even be the last 10 years of my life. I don't think I've spent that much on everything.
0: It's... uh. It is phenomenal to think about, isn't it? It is. It's, it's pretty, it's definitely something. And kind of like what you said before where, you know, traveling's not for everybody and same with the wedding thing. I think as long as people are happy and they're, they're spending money and getting some value out of it and creating memories and all that, that's awesome. It's certainly, it's not the direction that I'm taking at the moment, but it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty, pretty staggering to think about that amount of money and where that would go for, for the remainder of the world.
1: Yeah, that's it, man. They've probably had a great wedding and good for them, and that's their memories I'll have forever. So I'm not, certainly not trying to criticize it, but it is interesting, isn't it? The different paths we take and where we put, because our money, you know, you work for money for what purpose? To put a roof over your head and to get food, but then what? What do you do with it beyond that? And there are so many options in the world, and the DN thing is only one of those options. One more question for you on the wedding thing, since it has come up diamond rings. What do you know about diamond rings, their cost? why they cost what they cost. Do you have any opinions or knowledge about that? And let me tell you why I'm asking. On my other podcast, on the work that I do to allow me to be a digital nomad, these are the kinds of things that we talk about. Things like, well, they tell us that the diamonds cost this much because of this reason. Well, let's see what the evidence says. And I made some amazing discoveries just a couple of months ago. So with that little groundwork out of the way, you tell me, Steve, what do you know about diamonds and diamond rings?
0: Uh, I know that the majority of women that I've dated in the United States have really had their hearts set on one one day. That's probably the thing I know more than anything. And I know that I'm probably a pretty disappointing partner because that's not really something that I've, you know, I've, I've really set my sights on on providing. I think that it's just one of those things where there's so much money that gets put into it and so much expectation and so much all that. It just seems like it's going to be a disappointment no matter what. Um, my fiance, I proposed to her with a ring that is, you know, one of a kind, but very modest when you compare it to some of the rings that I've seen in, in weddings that I've mentioned and just try and take things, uh, a little more modestly. Like it's still a beautiful one of a kind piece and my fiance is happy and that's the thing that matters.
1: That's all that matters as long as she's happy. Did you know that they can create artificial diamonds in factories now. Did you know that?
0: I I did because I suggested it to my fiance and she said, no.
1: <laughs> wow, Steve, man, I could talk to you about that one topic for another hour, but we're quickly getting through this podcast. And I did want to come back. My main, One of my main interests in running this little blog and now this podcast is to talk about the DN lifestyle and the good and the bad and the subculture, is it growing? Is it stagnating? What kind of people does it attract? So that's probably pretty much the the key segment that I want to get to. But before we do, we've got another little interlude to make here. And this one is a clip of Tim Ferriss talking about mental health. Because what I did was I sent you a short list of clips that I would like to talk about over the course of this series. And I said, Steve, you choose a clips that you think might be the most uh, relevant to our conversation. And we'll talk about them. And of that shortlist, you chose this one. So we've already spoken about Tim Ferriss a little bit. To this day, do you follow his blog? Do you follow his YouTube? Do you have any real awareness of what he's doing with his life these days? Or just how much do you know about Tim Ferriss today?
0: Yeah, I uh, I know quite a lot. I definitely have been following the podcast for a long time. And it seems like the, the the main thing he does now is the podcast and then also raising money for psychedelic research, both of which I think are valiant things to pursue in this day and age. Excellent. Well, let me play this clip right now. It's a couple of minutes. We'll be back
1: on the other side of this.
0: You talk about this year being big because you gave this TED Talk where you spoke openly about mental health issues, about wanting at some point in your life to end your life. You've interviewed so many successful people and you talk about being frustrated that mental health isn't something we talk about as much. Do you see a connection between the people that are able to do something incredible and great and have that drive and mental health issues?
2: hundred percent. People who seem to have it all very often have extremely powerful, scary demons that they're fighting. It's important to discuss also because I think I and many people for a long time just viewed it as a personal failure, a personal weakness. Oh, you're depressed? Like, what's wrong with you? Why can't you figure it out? Really? And then that self-criticism just compounds the problem. But after having my uh, genome sequenced and uh, getting the interpretation of the results I remember the phone call I had with a number of doctors they pull it up and they have these these sliding bars from like green to red for all these various things (laughs) and uh, bipolar depression it was like off the charts. I thought that that would be really crippling in the sense that I would then use it as an excuse for things. But it had the opposite effect. I forgave myself because I looked at it just as a bug in the software. I'm a non-programmer with bugs in my software.
1: When it's happening to you, when you're struggling with it, what do you tell yourself?
2: My default, which is staying in my own head and trying to figure it out, is actually a huge liability. So what I will do is I will schedule time, prepay for dinners, pre-commit to group exercise and put things on the calendar that get me out of my own head.
0: You write these books to help other people feel less alone, but it, it certainly seems like almost therapy for Oh, it's 100% for you.
2: therapy. I don't write books unless I can't find the book I need.
0: What would you tell someone who's going through it, struggling
2: with mental health? If it's really severe, get professional help. Like, don't try to go it alone. If you're someone who perhaps goes back and forth, read a blog post that I wrote called Some Practical Thoughts on Suicide. It's the most important thing i've ever written it's free read that and just realize you are not alone and no matter where you are in terms of anxiety or depression or darkness there are thousands of people in the world probably millions at that exact same moment on the front lines with you fighting the exact same battle
1: so that was tim ferriss talking about mental health of course tim ferriss no wrote the 4 hour work week a big inspiration for many people who now call themselves digital nomads and he released that book back in 2007, so it's more than a decade since that book was released. And there are a lot of people out there who might have never read but not realized that somebody they've met or somebody who's influenced them was themselves influenced by Tim Ferriss. So it's not just his direct influence, but his indirect influence, I think, is significant on people our age, 31 years old, people doing what we're doing. So that's one of the reasons why he's so relevant to the conversation. And he's talking about mental health. This is one of my interests when it comes to the DN concept. What kind of effect does it have on us mentally, psychologically, physically, spiritually even? So with all of that said, I'll throw it back to you there. If you tell me, why did you want to talk about that clip and what do you take from it?
0: Yeah. I mean, mental health is something that I think doesn't get talked about enough in, in general, but especially within the digital nomad community, I think there's the the tendency for folks to make it seem like it's the, the greatest thing that's ever happened. And it can be. And, and there's there, I'm not debating that in any way. But I think I've talked to, I know I've talked to a lot of people who have worked so hard to make it happen and they've, you know, saved the money or started the business or who have the client list who are allowing them to go remote and they're going to go live on the beach and not spend any money and, you know, be able to have this lifestyle. And then it happens and then they feel lonely and they feel isolated. And really what happens is you're working in front of a computer all day long. And that's great that you have the freedom to be in front of a computer anywhere in the world. But at the same time, at the end of the day, like, is that all you need? And I think I've, I, I know I've run into a lot of people who are who are struggling with with that question, and like, where do you get connection? Where do you where do you get community? Where do you get those needs met? And how do you do that while also being a digital nomad? I think that's that's certainly something I'm wrestling with for for our next trip. I completely
1: relate to everything you're saying, and in that clip, where he talks about he believes that maybe he has certain predispositions towards mental health issues. I'm not so sure how these predis work I think certain lifestyles appear to have a much greater effect on these things and the DN concept involves taking yourself away from a support network that many people don't even realize they have going down to the pub and knowing the guy behind the bar or these little things they don't realize that this is kind of like a support network and we're social creatures we're gregarious creatures we want to talk to people most of us at least a little bit I think a lot of us don't realize we have so many things until we find ourselves in Phuket, Thailand, or we find ourselves in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, or whatever the case might be. And all of a sudden, a support network we didn't even know we had, we no longer do because we've left it behind. And all of a sudden, we're on our own. And this can be problematic, can't it?
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that I've, I've personally had trips and had experiences where a big part of like my internal dialogue has been, oh, I should be having fun oh, I'm an, on a beach and I'm, you know, not spending any money and I'm making money because I'm working and stuff like that. I should be, you know, at the top of the top of the mountain, I should be cheering for joy every day. And, you know, if that's not where I'm at at the moment, that can be difficult too. Yeah. And so, the DN thing is, is seems like it might be
1: growing and there's these mechas like chain mind. But even then, you're not going to get there and be surrounded by digital nomads. And even the digital nomads you meet, some of them might've been on the road for a years maybe aided by the idea of meeting people and then they're gone a month later. I've heard that Chiang Mai can be a little bit clicky in this regard. The long-termers don't go out of their way to meet the new people because the new people tend to come and go. You know, not everybody can can stick at this for months and months and years and years. So people can be getting into this expecting, oh, I'm going to go and find a whole bunch of people who are like me online or they're working on businesses online. But then, you know, at 4 p.m. or 5 p.m., it's time to go and have a drink, or it's time to go and play some pool, or it's time to go and hang out with the other guys. But it might not be as easy as that. You might find yourself back at your apartment or your Airbnb all
0: alone. Steve, what say you? Yeah, absolutely. My theory uh, is that over time, people turn into Bali dogs. And so in Bali, like the dogs, like the wild feral dogs there, they're so different than like a dog you'd see in the United States where they're, they're gregarious, happy, and they, they really rely on people. And they, they really come alive when they're, when they're with their owners and running around and playing. Like the Bali dogs are – I mean, man, they could basically have jobs if they wanted to. They are fiercely independent. They don't need you. They don't need you to pet them. They don't need anything. And I think that over time people who this is just my experience, but I've seen a lot of people who have spent a lot of time being a nomad, being an expat, and they kind of just turn into those like more more independent, less community based animals.
1: Yeah, it takes a certain mindset to even want to do this in the first place, I think. And then if you do it for a period of time, whether it's months or a few years, you're gonna build up that independence. This lifestyle does weed people out, doesn't it? And I I don't mean that in a in a nasty way, but Perhaps people who are less independent than they thought they were, or people who maybe are less resilient than they thought they were, or even just less solitary. People who maybe can't quite handle the long day at the cafe, followed by the session at the gym, followed by an empty house. This lifestyle will test people, won't it?
0: It will. And I think that, I mean, for me, when I first started doing this, there wasn't a lot of the community around it. There wasn't the Reddit the subreddit about it. There wasn't all of these different ways that you can kind of connect with people and find people doing the same thing as you. So my hope is that, you know, for this trip coming up for me, that I'm able to find that support and find those communities and meet people who do similar things. But I also think that for a lot of folks, it can be surprising and, and pretty pretty staggering to be so lonely and so like isolated, especially if you're working on a computer. And what I've been trying to do is think of a better word than digital nomad, because just nomad itself, like that word has like that connotation of being out on your own in the desert, like moving between places, but you don't have, you're not staying anywhere. And there must be just a more, I don't know, more, more humanitized word than that.
1: Yeah, there's got to be, we've got to find one. We're not the only guys working on this project because digital nomad has, built itself, or it's gotten itself a reputation of what we would call in Australia, you know, the wankerish kind of thing, which it is, let's be honest, that people who actually go out there and identify that way do tend to be those guys who aren't going to last very long. So we need a new word to describe it. But in the absence of that word, DN does seem to be the, the term that we use to describe what we're doing. It doesn't. it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And to speak to, I think, another maybe like harder part of the digital nomad community Is that just from my experience too, like the same thing you were just saying? Some of the people who are the loudest voices in the community are people that I don't want to hang out with and they're, they're kind of wanker ish. And I think also from like a, from a location standpoint, the more a place is suited to digital romance for me, the less I kind of want to be there. And because everything kind of becomes homogenized and pretty vanilla over time and you're getting, oh, here's the cheap meal with the cheap Wi-Fi with the cheap villa that's by the beach, that's by the thing. And how many different places can you do that in before it's boring?
1: Yeah, I completely understand. I'm here in Kuching and I've heard some people refer to it as the next Chiang Mai. And at first I was like, yeah, I can definitely see why places grow. I mean, they've just built this new pedestrian footbridge over the river. You can see that there's developments taking place. It's so cheap. There's not many Western people here, so... We're still a bit of a novelty. People are friendly and everything's great. Do I really want to promote this place too much and have and, and be a small part of what might be, a you know, in 10 or 15 years, more people coming here? Do I really want that? Maybe it's better if this place does stay off the beaten track and not too many people come here because DNs, the lifestyle might be cool, but it does seem to attract the poser crowd, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's an interesting discussion that I think happens in a lot of different aspects in addition to being a digital nomad. But the things that attract people to a community, to a place, to a destination are oftentimes the reasons why it becomes really popular and then starts sucking after a while. And how do you balance that out? I don't know. I think another thing that happens a lot is that. At least from my perception, it seems like the digital nomad community can be, can kind of suck a place dry after a while. Like they're, it, it seems exploitative in a little, in, in a couple of different ways. And I also wonder too if maybe that would be helpful if there was more of a culture of giving back and volunteering and kind of, you know, working on service projects as opposed to just, hey, I'm going to take advantage of the fact that it's cheaper to live here.
1: Well, that actually is a good question. And we're coming towards the end of the hour, but this, this is another conversation that comes up in the subreddit and digital nomad forums on the internet is this idea of uh, the DNs taking advantage of these towns or the fact that they're bringing their money, they're buying their gym memberships, their Airbnb apartments that would otherwise be empty, they're uh, spending their money on their coffee and their movie, bringing the money into the economy. Is this in any way exploitative or is it completely fair and good commerce and the way the world should be? What are your thoughts on this?
0: Wow, it's a huge topic. And I think probably the answer is yes to everything. Is it exploitative? Yes. Is it also contributing to the economy and really opening up a lot of different opportunities for local people as far as jobs and opportunities and being able to learn how to do some of these things, themselves, like learn how to be a part of that culture? Like, yes, I think everything is just yes. And the only thing I've kind of steered myself towards is try and being as thoughtful about it as I can. Do I feel like I'm exploiting people? I try not to, but that also means that for every, I don't know, every community that I'm taking advantage of because it's cheap, I also try and do some volunteer work or try and give back or try and um, work with maybe some local folks and and try and teach them how to, I don't know, to work, to build some stuff on the internet or whatever it is too. So I think there's, there's just so much to that question. Yeah, I agree with
1: you. We could talk about it all day, but we're getting towards the end. So a few more questions, Get into the the final bit here. So, I sent you through a list of questions that I'm going to be asking people on this series going forward about the scene, the subculture, and the lifestyle. Because what I'm trying to get to here is is this a good path going forward? We've got this amazing technology that anybody with good ideas who's willing to put in the work can do freelance work or they can build their own online business. It might take them a few years, but once they've got it built, the world's their oyster. And it's so easy to stay in contact with friends and family, with Skype or with Discord. So it has never in recorded human history been easier for a regular person to travel the world long-term. As far as I can tell, it's never been easier. But is this necessarily the best lifestyle for the individual or for the group? So can you tell me, going back to your previous trips, back when there wasn't even a word to describe what you were doing, the longer-term travelers that you met, do you remember if they did seem to you like they were happy and content that they had made the right decisions with their life? Can you speak to that at all for us?
0: Certainly some, certainly some felt content and happy and felt like they had found a new home and you know maybe had married or, or started a family and, and wherever they they were and also I'm I'm sure I'm not alone in the fact that I met a lot of people who felt who just were were old and crotchety and bitter about the way that things have changed. And we're really holding on to, oh, this used to be so cool 10 years ago. And now that you showed up, it sucks. And it's all just a matter of attitude, I think.
1: Yeah, I completely understand. Well, I'm 31. So I'm, I'm at that age where I've got siblings who are having children now. And there's a certain thing that's cool about being around children, whether, even if it's not your children, the energy that they have, and watching them grow up and get good at sports to do well at school. And There's a certain intangible benefit that I think follows from being with your people, the people you grew up with, the people you know, some of whom have never really left their town, but they're still the guy you had fun with at school, and you can still get together and watch the... There's a certain intangible, intangible beauty that I think comes from remaining where you grew up. But on the flip side, you and I and most of the listeners, we also know there's an intangible beauty that comes from... Traveling the world is everywhere you go, you chose to be there and you can do whatever you want. It's like living in a video game. So this decision of well, what to do with my life, do I do this for a short term or a long term? These are the kinds of questions that I'm pondering, Steve. And I'm sure as you're about to start your next journey, these are some of the questions you're pondering as
0: well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that at least in my experience, you know, satisfaction and happiness comes from knowing yourself and knowing what you want to do with your life and putting those two things together. And if you are into traveling or have that itch or wanna see what it would be like to live this lifestyle, my recommendation will be to do it, of course. But if that doesn't feel safe or doesn't feel like something that you're interested in, like obviously it's not right for you. So being able to kind of be aligned with, you know, what you want and what you're doing and how to actually get there is, is the important part. All right, so here's a couple of questions
1: to wrap all of this up. Is this a realistic lifestyle? longer term, the DN lifestyle, traveling, working from a laptop. Right now in 2019, you're 31, you're about to be second phase. Right now, do you think this is a realistic lifestyle longer term?
0: I'll define longer term as more than a year. And I would say maybe. I think that everything kind of gets stale if you do it too much. And for me, I've always tried to just switch things up. Oh, this is getting bored. I'll go do something else or the opposite or whatever it is. I think that for me, at least, you know, looking at this trip in in foresight right now, I think a year is probably pretty good. And I think after that, I'll probably want to do something else. But I don't really know. We'll see what happens. That's an excellent answer.
1: All right. So what proportion, based on what you've seen, what proportion of people are capable of handling the ups and the downs? that come with this path and let me give some background. I quite seriously mean that, the ups and the downs because it's one thing to oh, you know, I'm not feeling well today or some bad things have happened, I'm just gonna put my head down, focus on the work and get through it. But it's another thing to get through the ups, some of the amazing things that can happen when you're traveling longer term. How do you deal with with the ups and not get carried away with the partying and, and the taking it all in and maybe getting a bit ahead of yourself. What proportion of people do you think are capable of handling Good and the bad, and getting through unscathed.
0: Hmm. I mean, I like to be pretty, pretty optimistic. I think a lot of people are able to do it, I just think it needs to be an honest conversation before it happens. Like, I think it's pretty easy for folks to watch that YouTube video where people are kind of spouting all of the amazing things that happen and forget that, you know, when, when you're done working on your computer all day long and then you don't have anyone to hang out with, it's not really as glamorous as it sounds, even if you are at the beach and doing something that looks very lavish, if you were to take a picture. And I think social media and YouTube and things like that have really kind of exemplified that. So, I mean, if you can be honest with yourself and go into it with a good mindset, go for it. At least try it, you know? Have a little bit of a safety net and, you know, book a ticket, see what happens.
1: All right. Penultimate question. When it comes to advice, what do you think you would say to yourself if you could go back to the start? So, in your case, we're talking 2009, about 10 years ago, you were in your late teens, early 20s, and you were about to embark on the trip. If you could go back to to that version of Steve, What do you think you might try and explain to him?
0: Man, I've seen, I think we talked about this before about, you know, video games and and YouTube and all these different things. And really, I think what it came down to with this next sort of wave of the internet is having an audience and starting a blog for me now just feels so painful, like just to write some stuff that I know no one's going to see and it's probably going to suck and all these things. But it's that old saying, you know, the best time to plant a tree was 10 years ago. And the second best time is today. And it's one of those things that if I could have gone back in time, I maybe would have started writing about being a digital nomad or uh, blogging about traveling or doing one of those things that you know if I'd stuck with that for ten years or something, that would probably be my primary job right now, which would be pretty cool.
1: I know what you mean about how painful it is to start a blog. I've uh, obviously just started the Nomad Skeptic one, and I sat down and I, I wanted to write a quick piece about my first day in Kuching. and that ended up taking three or four hours because I got carried away. You know, that's time that that maybe I probably should have been doing other things. But I thought, man, no one's gonna read this. It's 5,000 words, but I pressed publish and I thought, well, if no one reads it, I still can come back and read it in five or 10 years. But I got a couple of messages from people on Reddit. I posted a link to it on uh, Reddit Digital Nomad. I didn't make a new thread for it. I didn't spam it. There was a thread about um, who runs their own business or something like this. So I responded to that and then I posted the link much later. So I wasn't spamming Reddit Digital Nomad. But I got a couple of messages from people saying they read the whole And that's all it took to make my day, Steve. Brought a smile to my face. Just a couple of people. I'm like, really, you read the whole thing? I don't even know if I would have read the whole thing, but, you know, really uh, brought a smile to my face. So I encourage anybody who's to start a blog. There are people who want to read this. They want to learn about your experiences. I say give it a go and uh, put the effort in and I'll be one of those people who is uh, reading the blogs. Now, final question, and this is a very tough one. What do you think the 2029, Steve, if he could come back to today to hang out with you tonight, do you have any suspicions about what he might have to say to you today about this next trip you're about to go on?
0: Mm, enjoy it. Yeah, savor every moment moment and have a good time and don't worry about how much money is being spent or whatever it is, just have as, as much fun as possible and grow a lot.
1: Excellent answer. All right, well this is the end of the call. I could talk to you all day, but I try to keep these about an hour tops. And we've gone a little bit over that today, but I've really enjoyed it. So what I'd love like for you to do for us, Steve, is to tell myself and tell the listeners where they can find more about you, whether it is a blog or a LinkedIn account or anything like that. I'll put links in the show notes of this call so that anybody who wants to follow anything you're about to say can go and check it out. And yeah, just give us your conclusion to, to this stage of your life and about the call. We've covered many things today. Take a few moments and uh, you wrap it up for us. Tell us all about Steve right now in 2019 and what you've got coming and uh, where people can contact you.
0: Yeah, so I have an Instagram, a Twitter, a Facebook and a LinkedIn, all of which that I do not use. So I am a horrible self promoter. I'm horrible at sharing on the Internet. This, you know, this podcast was actually kind of a step in the direction to sort of connect more with the digital nomad community. So I can leave the links for all of those things I mentioned, but the best way to reach out would just be over one of those platforms in the, in the DMs and say hello. I'd love to hear from people and hear what they maybe got out of this podcast or what travels they're going on or anything like that. And as far as like maybe parting words for anybody who's thinking about doing a longer trip or being a digital nomad, if you have that itch, just book the ticket don't think about it. Make sure you have a little bit of a backup plan and things aren't going to go bad, but you know, challenge yourself, get out there, meet new friends, see new places, engage with different cultures. I think it's there's it's never going to be a bad thing. Absolutely
1: sensational. Thank you very much. Steph. I really appreciate it. This concludes episode number 2 of the Nomad Skeptic podcast. Wow, what a fantastic first interview. Good luck following that one, future guests, and I've got a few lined up as well, so We'll see how all of that goes. But a huge thanks to you, Steve. Make sure you check out the links in the show notes below, listeners. And I'll see you sometime soon for episode three. But on the 23rd of May, 2019, Steve coming to you from the West Coast, San Francisco, United States, where he's wrapping up his life. And I'm JLB here in Kuching, Borneo, Malaysia. And I'm having a great time here. So that'll do us. Until next time, you guys, take care of yourselves. And here is Faye to take us out.
0: You've been listening to the Nomad Skeptic Podcast, brought to you by nomadskeptic.com. New articles, podcasts, and videos posted regularly at nomadskeptic.com. Join the Nomad Skeptic Discord server and be part of the conversation. And wherever you are in the world, have an awesome day.